This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. God's Word is quite astonishing. Uh, and if you've studied it for any amount of time, you've probably experienced some of this, where like you kind of look at a passage, uh, and then you study it even for a while, and you, you think you've got it nailed down, uh, and then you come back to it again, and you find something new there. Uh, there's something about God's Word, unchanging though it is, uh, makes itself new to us every time we look at it. And the reason that I start with that is because here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, we're going to be covering some topics uh, that are sensitive for us, that are difficult to talk about, um, that are often misused and maybe misunderstood, and maybe we have studied it and come to some conclusions, but uh, maybe we might be surprised today. And I think that if I were to make a hundred more sermons on this passage, they might all be able to focus on slightly different things. And I'm not sure that I would be able to give the last word on what 1 Corinthians says. Only God can do that. But with that in mind, I want to preface a little bit of what we're going to do today, because there's no way that I could cover or say everything that this passage has to say in 30 minutes. It's going to bring up topics uh, that could each be 30-minute sermons or uh, our lectures, and there have been many, many, many books written on many of these subjects. But what, I'm, what we're going to attempt to do is follow how Paul answered some of these questions for the Corinthians. You see, the Corinthians had questions about their bodies and about their sexuality that they wanted Paul to answer. And they were kind of expecting just hard and fast rules. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what we're actually going to see is that Paul is going to go behind those surface-level questions and propose an alternative view of the world an alternative view of their bodies, an alternative view of their sexuality that is actually God's view, and that it challenges their own view in very significant ways. And the ways that he's going to go about doing that is by tackling some slogans. So here's what we'll see in our passage as we go forward. We're going to see that the Corinthians had some slogans that they liked to use, uh, slogans like, all things are lawful for me. Like they just use that as an answer, you know, it's like just a little slogan that they would use. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul is going to give responses to these. And through this dynamic of seeing how Paul tackles their own slogans and then proposes his own through the slogan, the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's what Paul's going to be arguing for. He's going to show that there are significant problems with the Corinthians' view of their body and that God has a much better view, a much more beautiful view, a view with so much more purpose. Now, we don't use these same slogans as the Corinthians, all things are lawful for me, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. Um, and so although Paul is responding to those kinds of slogans, I would like us to consider it in a slogan that might be a little bit more familiar to us today, which is my body, my choice. As we're gonna see a little bit later, we use this in lots of areas of our life. We define freedom by this. I get to do what I want unconditionally. And Paul's gonna to respond to that and he's gonna say, actually, your body belongs to God. 
and you're responsible to him for it. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. As such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So my body, my choice is a slogan that we probably most quickly associate with uh, pro-choice ads or protests. So we might think that this slogan is relatively new. Uh, And maybe it being phrased with these particular words is relatively new, but the idea behind it definitely isn't new. Nor does it only apply to abortion. We can say, my body, my choice, in relation to how many drinks we're going to have, as long as we're not driving. Like, we understand that there's a parameter out there, like, do no harm. But besides do no harm, it's my body, my choice. I'm not driving. If I want to throw back 10, that's great. We believe that my body, my choice applies to smoking. I should be able to smoke really whatever I want because it's my body and my choice. Anyone who would deign to tell me otherwise presumes upon my freedom to determine what I want to do. It encapsulates my body, my choice. You know, I think our modern definition of freedom doesn't actually align with God's definition of freedom. And Paul's going to show us today that the highest truth of our culture actually has a lot of issues. This highest truth of my body, my choice, actually results in us being enslaved, in being judged, and in being lonely. And these are going to be our three points today. But Paul's not just going to address the failures of our own view. He's going to propose alternatives at every step alternative of what it means to glorify God in your body. So first, it's being enslaved, or in some translations, dominated, is the language that Paul will use. Uh, Maybe a way to say it is that we are in bondage to our choices. 
Because although freedom of my body, my choice, might seem quite radically free, uh, we also recognize that we can be deceived, as Paul says, in verses 9 through 10, and that these things will actually end up dominating us. If you look at verse 12, as he's responding to this Corinthian slogan, all things are lawful for me. He's like, yeah, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. He's like, yes, but I won't be enslaved to anything. Now, I do want to kind of look at this list of, of sins, of, of course, that, that Paul is listing here in 1 Corinthians 6. This list is not entire, in, in, intended to be exhaustive. Uh, it's entire, ent- <laughs> am I going to get that word right? It's intended to be uh, representative. But there's one in here to our modern ears that stands out, and I want to address it just real quickly. And that is that phrase, nor men who practice homosexuality. And I think the first step that we need to take in looking at this text, as far as what it declares for us, is recognizing that Paul simply assumes what the rest of Scripture teaches. Paul can look at God's vision for sexuality that we read in Genesis 2 and simply include it. And I think, and we're going to look at this a little bit later, but something that might be helpful for us is to notice that Paul doesn't make this sin any worse or any better. And we might just take greed as an example. Like when Paul is listing off all the sins that we can be deceived by, sure, homosexuality is on there and sexual immorality, but then he can also go to greed and reviling. And he says these things are just as destructive to God's vision of the good life. And so in some sense, I think that critiques us on both sides. We're going to look at that a little bit more later. Um, But I I wanted to make that space to to understand that most of us can look at everything else on this list and say, those things do real damage. But we have questions about that one. And so I'd invite you, uh, I I would love to have more conversations about it, um, but I'd also love to explore what the Bible has to say about it and why Paul can simply assume those things. But coming back to this enslavement, We can understand that this list of things controls us in a particular way. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but some have the potential to enslave me. We intuitively understand this maybe uh, with something like drinking. Uh, We intuitively understand that there's uh, uh, what was once free might actually enslave me. All addictions corrupt the volition of the person such that it is no longer them actually expressing sovereignty over their own bodies. They're now controlled by the thing that they were once free to do. Maybe as a more innocent example, you guys remember the uh, Lay's chip ad, bet you can't eat just one? Have you ever tried to eat one potato chip? You look down and the entire bag is gone. We struggle to see that as enslavement or domination, but there's a reality there where like our bodies just like can be on their own. They can run on autopilot and do crazy things. And at some point, we fail to have adequate control over them. So maybe with drunkenness on that list, that makes some sense. Uh, But what about some other things on this list? Do you know what reviling means? Reviling means to criticize in an abusive or angrily insulting manner. And Paul says that this 
uh, just maybe like any form of sexual immorality or drunkenness, has the potential to enslave us, reviling? Last week I mentioned that I can make heavy use of sarcasm. And maybe paired with a painfully apparent passive aggressiveness, I'm often in the camp of reviling, at least within my own heart, even if on my face I'm smiling. There's something about this that deceives me. There's something about this that convinces me that what I'm actually doing is right, that I'm justified, when really I'm being dominated. I'm being enslaved. My arrogance and my ruthless hard-heartedness are on full display. And this may not just stop with reviling. What about my greed? What about my sexual morality? What about my drunkenness and my swindling? These actions in my body, far from just being things that I do here and there, actually have a profound implication on who I will become and who I am becoming. And that's Paul's logic. Paul says, do not be deceived. These things affect you. These things enslave you. Are you deceived into thinking that what you do in your body doesn't impact who you are? Do you still believe that greed doesn't corrupt your nature? What about the way that you diet? You still believe that feeding pornography night after night doesn't change who you are? But Paul doesn't just say that you're enslaved and hopeless. Paul provides an alternate view, and the slogan that he's going to be used can be found at the end of verse 13. The Lord is meant for the body and the body for the Lord. But he's going to kind of tease out what that means. If once you were enslaved, now we've got to be freed from that slavery. And look at verse 11. Paul lists all these things, and he says, As such were some of you, but you were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of Jesus. And again, in 19 and 20, he says, You are not your own, but you were bought. I mean, you hear that language. Christ had to purchase you from what you were enslaved to. He now owns you. But what does it mean to be freed from? Uh, what, what, is, what does it mean to be freed from this thing that we were and freed to this next thing? And to that, it's helpful to look at just the big Bible stories. I'm going to run through it real quick. You know, the Bible says that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. And that image-bearing language meant that they had a responsibility. Uh, they were supposed to spread God, God's vision of the good life throughout the world. They're supposed to be his representatives. But they were created with the freedom to obey or not obey. But Adam and Eve decided, my body, my choice, and they sinned. And the Bible tells a story that now every person, man, woman, and child, experiences some freedom maybe into what enslaves them, but says that no one is free to actually serve God the way that they were supposed to. We're enslaved to ourselves. We're enslaved to my body, my choice. Sin has dominated us. And Paul's answer is that Jesus has purchased us out of that. And he's purchased us into new obedience. 
that we can actually be restored into spreading God's vision of the good life again here in the world. That we are not bound to only seek ourselves and our own, but we're actually bound to follow Jesus and spread that goodness all over wherever we go. And it affects everything in our lives, including our bodies. The Bible's idea of freedom, of being freed from and freed to a new master, may run counter to our idea of absolute freedom. And so maybe a better word to use is redeemed. We are redeemed from something which once controlled us and liberated to do that which is truly good. So the first problem that we see with our view of the body that we share and overlap a little bit with the Corinthians of of my body, my choice, uh, is that we are enslaved to our passions. But Paul will say that we're not only dominated by my, my body, my choice, but that we're also going to be judged by what we choose to do in our bodies. You see, in verse 13, Paul's going to take another Corinthian slogan. Food is meant for the body, or food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And Paul responds to that slogan that they used with, yes, and God will destroy both one and the other. What the Corinthians meant by that was, what I do with my body doesn't really matter because it's passing away. Uh, God has saved maybe my spirit, but you know what? What I do with my body is free for me to do because it's, it's already dying. And there's just certain appetites that my body has that it needs filled. And God doesn't necessarily need to tell me how that works. I just need to fill them and then move on because it's really about this other thing. But Paul reminds them that in the biblical mindset, they will actually, in the biblical mindset, God actually deeply cares about what we do in our bodies not only because God made them and God redeemed them, but also because God saw them worthwhile to resurrect. Now, to understand that, to understand kind of what this means, I'm gonna back up a little bit. Um, We have an age old question when it comes to God's judgment, especially about our sexual lives. Why might God judge me in sexual things that are consensual? I'm not doing any harm it seems that this would be beautiful. Isn't this God's vision of the good life? This is what Corinth was asking from Paul. Doesn't God just care that no harm is being done? And as I mentioned before, one way to go at this question is to notice how Paul can equate things like sexual immorality with greediness and how it corrupts not only ourselves, but our duty as image bearers. And that it corrupts not only ourselves and our duty as image bearers, but then corrupts what is proclaimed as God's vision of the good life. Because you see, God has a vision for what our bodies were made for. God has a vision for what our sexuality was made for. And it's better than anything the world has to offer because he made it that way. So when I said that, notice that the sins uh, that that Paul puts together in this list in verses 9 and 10, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers, uh, is the same as the sexually immoral. And that's really interesting, because if you really think about that, does 
does Paul, and therefore God, does God really believe that a belittling Facebook, a belittling, belittling comment on Facebook, reviling, just read reviling, deserves the same amount of judgment from God as adultery? And maybe a way to help us interpret this a little bit about how we act in the world. Do our churches make a big of deal out of sins such as greed as we do as sins such as homosexuality? Because God does. Why? One pastor could say, and he's, he's speaking of conservatives and liberals in, in um, theological terms, not necessarily in political terms, so you just got to kind of understand that. Um, that generally conservatives make a big deal of the sexual sins. And liberals make a big deal out of the other moral sins in the list, greed, reviling, and swindling. But the Bible leans in neither direction. And as a previous pastor here at Trinity Church would often say, the Bible is an equal opportunity offender. This is actually very enlightening. Because on the one hand, Traditionally, conservatives, conservative Christians, conservative theologically Christians, have tended to come down really hard on individual sexual purity, but we often give a pass to those who revile. In fact, we often promote those who are angry in their speech and domineering to positions of leadership even in our churches. So we clearly don't see sins the same way that God does. But on the other hand, what's interesting about it is that God does see these the same. And it's because of what God's vision of the good life includes. Our culture is a hypersexualized culture that both idolizes sexuality as the pinnacle of our self-expression. If you don't live out your desires, you're repressing yourself somehow. But it also simultaneously devalues our sexuality by calling it just an appetite that is unmoored from life-giving relationships at all. And some ways that we can see it doing this is the separation of sex from procreation, from marriage, partnerships, and ultimately from other human beings through pornography. Just abstracted sex away from people. It's meaningless. So on the one hand, sex must become all-consuming, the ultimate thing that must define me. And on the other thing, it is just a meaningless appetite that must be managed. Neither of these views are particularly good. And neither of them are representative of our human experience, if we're being 100% honest. God has a view of our bodies and our sexuality that radically undermines my body, my choice. And maybe the easiest way to say it is that our view of sexuality under the, under the slogan of my body, my choice, that I just get to do whatever I want with my body as long as it's not doing any harm, it's just an inherently selfish view. Our view of sexuality that makes my body my choice ultimate declares that I'm here only to benefit, only to realize my own needs. I'm just trying to self-actualize, and you're just a step along the way. Simultaneously, the denigration of sex to an appetite that 
just needs to be managed, and so anything that we need to do to manage that is good, lowers God's views of sex into meaninglessness. It robs it of what makes it actually good. The reason that God cares about and judges our sex lives and everything that we do in our body is because it either represents or denigrates his, his vision of the good life. <clears throat> so although we may create arbitrary distinctions between our sins, Paul say, says that they all deserve judgment because they've broken something beautiful. Greed corrupts not only our own, but takes, takes advantage of others. Adultery not only breaks trust, but it's just a consuming relationship filling needs. Now, as much as I want you to understand the seriousness of marring God's vision of the good life through your sins, whatever those sins may be, I also want you to hear Paul's solution. Now, let me be clear. God's kingdom has a uh, zero tolerance policy for sin. That's why Paul can say, do not be deceived. None of these people will inherit the kingdom. But also Paul follows that up with that he is a God who fights for your bodily resurrection in verse 14. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. The fact that Jesus came back with his physical body. Now he could do things our physical bodies can't do, but what he did do was sit down on the beach and eat fish with his disciples. Because eating fish with your friends is good. He can describe our reunion with him as a heavenly banquet where wine is flowing freely because the enjoyment of wine in that context as the consummation of a great relationship and at a wedding feast is something that's good. That desire is good in your body. That desire for union between husband and wife is good. But it's not ultimate. And Paul says in verse 14 that God raised up Jesus from the dead. And his implication is there that he's also raising you. And he says that right after. There has only ever been one in this life who, li who lived his life in purity. And he offers that to the rest of us. And because he offers us that kind of like life, we can again be like Adam and Eve. And we can begin... Uh, to restore our image-bearing responsibilities and to live God's vision of the good life that is actually good, that takes advantage of no one, that does not desecrate or mar his vision of what is beautiful, but is actually what we were made for. And the question is, do we believe that here and now? I think most of us look at our lives here and now like Odysseus uh, strapped to the mast, you know, um, as he's passing the sirens, he just can't, he knows he's not gonna be able to bear it, so we gotta tie it down. And we're just trying to get through this life. We're gonna have temptations in this life and just, it's bad, our bodies are bad. They want things that they shouldn't. And so we need to be tied down. And then finally, when we're dead, we'll be liberated from these things that consume us. But if the resurrection is what we're looking forward to, in bodies where we're gonna eat food and drink wine, and where Ephesians can say uh, that the union between a husband and wife is just a, a foretaste of the intimacy that we're gonna have with God. If our bodies were made to experience that sort of intimacy, God is restoring that to us through the power of the resurrection that we can experience here and now. 
We can enjoy that glass of wine not to numb out our feelings from an overwhelming day or an overwhelming month or year, but to celebrate something good. Food isn't something to be used as comfort or something to be abstained from because it makes my body less appealing, but something that nourishes and is worth celebrating. You can use your words decisively and truthfully not to run other people down, but to actually build them up. Sex can be used not to use and consume, but to unite, strengthen, and build up. Exercise can be used to God's glory instead of just about making yourself appetizing. Switching from a my body, my choice lens, or way of looking at the world, to a my body is meant for the Lord means an escape from judgment into an experience of resurrection life here and now, and one that we expect to be in its fullness in the future. So that although we may struggle against our old selves and our old things that had dominion over us here and now, we fight to see those little bursts of resurrection power of God's good vision, God's something beautiful here and now. So far, we've seen Paul say that the implications of my body, my choice result in enslavement and judgment, but that God provides redemption and resurrection. But there's one more implication of my body, my choice that might be a little bit more personal. And that is that, Paul will say, if you live under my body and my choice, uh, you will be lonely. When we determine what we want to do with our bodies, whatever that might be, we destroy ourselves. In verse 18, Paul says that the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul, building off of the ideas that we've already done about enslavement and judgment, says that doing these kinds of things in our body take us further away from what we actually wanted. There's a super angsty song from a band in 2006. The band's name is Cute Is What We Aim For. Uh, and the song is exploring some of the perils of club life, one night stands and loneliness that it results in. One line from the bridge says, she thought she could buy happiness by the bottle. Maybe we might twist that. We thought we could buy intimacy relationship by the bottle or by the next sexual escapade, by drunkenness, by greed, by swindling. But as the song will go on, it'll just explain the emptiness that she feels night after night of living this life in the club where you go to the club and dance and have a good time, drink, go home with a different partner and just start it all over again. But time after time left alone and by herself doing the same thing over and over and over again. Have you ever felt the shame, embarrassment, hurt, and sadness and loneliness of a person who was supposed to be there for you, but left when they got what they needed? I think often this is why many of us turn to self-sufficient forms of intimacy like pornography and masturbation. My body, my choice. I don't want to be dependent upon anybody else. You see, my body, my choice isn't a choice towards dependent, vulnerable intimacy, but towards independence. And maybe seeking to pleasure ourselves, we actually bring ourselves further from what we truly desire. 
So what does Paul give for the answer of this question of crushing loneliness, the sin that we do against ourselves that actually abstracts us away from the thing that we want? And he is going to claim that their bodies were meant for an intimacy that they could not possibly imagine. That instead of loneliness, that we would have communion with the living God because we are his temple. Of course, you cannot unite yourself to a prostitute or to sexual explorations or to drunkenness or to greed or to reviling or homosexuality or to swindling because God himself dwells there. He owns the body. Of course, this means you'd be foolish to set up any sort of other idol. God's going to remove it. It's his. And of course, he's going to dig through the temple and unroot all of the other idols. And speaking from experience, I can tell you that this is a very painful process. We like holding on to our idols. They feel quite safe. But God isn't watching from way up high. He's not twiddling his thumbs to see if you're going to make the right choice. God isn't checked out waiting to see if the people of Trinity Church will turn and actually be faithful or whether they're going to be unfaithful. God enters in by the power of the Holy Spirit to your very body and says, mine. He says, what's this doing here? Get rid of it. I'm looking for an intimacy that is greater than you could possibly imagine. There are several places in the Bible where it describes God filling the temple with his glory. And in Ezekiel, it describes God's glory coming like the sound of many waters. And it, they describe it as the earth shining with God's glory. And seeing that awe-inspiring glory fill the temple made Ezekiel fall flat on his face. He said it was wondrous to behold. 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that if you have faith in Jesus, your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit. That God's glory that shone throughout all the earth in Ezekiel's vision now can shine through you. As one theologian said, since the Holy Spirit dedicated us as temples to the living God, we must take care that God's glory shines through us. Far from being alone, God says, subjecting your life, submitting your body to, to me means an intimacy that you could not comprehend. an intimacy that you were made for. So getting behind these surface questions of our sexuality, um, today we're really exploring what does God think about our bodies. And I hope that we've seen today that our bodies were so precious to God that he would redeem them, resurrect, and reside in them. Now I'd like to reiterate again that a lot was covered today. And some of it was given not nearly enough time and I would love to talk to you about any questions that you're leaving with from the sermon. Um, and in fact, Trinity, as we start up small groups soon, I want us to be a place where not just with our bodies and sexuality, that we are a place where we are exploring what God has to say. We're wrestling with it. We're trying to figure out the truth and subject our lives to what he says we should be. But I do want you to know that no matter what sort of sins you've been deceived by, no matter how deeply you are enslaved. Hear Paul's words that it is possible that you can be were. Such were some of you. Such were we. Trinity is not a church 
of people who are made up of sexual, who people who are sexually pure, but of people who are sexually broken. We are not content people. We are greedy people. We are not sober people, but drunkards. We are not peacemakers, but revilers. We were not honest, but swindlers. And with the Corinthians, we cling to the same reality that Jesus is the one who makes us whole, that Jesus is the one who changes us, that redeems us, that makes us into people who bring life into the world instead of sucking life out of it. That because of Jesus' washing, sanctification, and justification, we leave behind my body, my choice, and we become temples of the living God. Trinity, let us glorify God in our bodies. Let's shine his glory by freely doing the things that we were made to do. Let us not be enslaved, but redeemed. Not judged, but resurrected. Not lonely, but united to God himself. The one who gave his own body so that he might indwell our own. Would you pray with me? Father, there's so much hurt and confusion about our bodies and about our sexuality. Father, there's a lot of pain that I wasn't able to address today. There's, there's pain of being at the receiving end of some of these sinful actions, of bearing the brunt and the sin of others. But Father, I pray that you would show us how you love our bodies. Show us what it means to live with resurrected desires and appetites. Show us what it means to live as the redeemed. And Father, I pray that these, your people, might know and see their own bodies as just as important as you do. That you would rescue them, that you would resurrect them, that you would indwell them. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.